Hello, friends. I'm JP. And I'm Drew, and you're listening to the Broken But Beautiful podcast, where we talk about why church is still worth it. JP, it's good to see you, my friend. It's good to see you. It's been a while. We haven't caught up in a while, so I've enjoyed all the chit-chat before we hit play. Yeah, yeah. uh, Some behind-the-scenes looks there. We talk about all the stuff that's going on in our lives. We uh, make sure that our, our... friendships and our relationships are going well and then we really get into what we're here to do and uh this season of this podcast has been really good we've been talking about different things that uh people look at church and they go how do you handle those sorts of things and uh as we record this this is going to be our last episode of season two and i really think we're about to go out with a bang (laughs) (laughs) today we're going to talk about politics and religion which you know, is, is a challenging thing to talk about. Some people might have already stopped listening when I said that. But Drew, we've both seen a lot, I mean, our whole lives, but specifically in recent years, political narratives and discourses just be really challenging in churches. We've seen people in our churches quit talking to each other over politics. We've seen people get really upset. And we've seen situations where, let's just be honest, it was revealed that people's politics were more important than their faith. And this is, this is hard. And then you see a lot of people, you know, one of the big conversations that's important to us is people that no longer participate in church, but still identify in some way as Christian. One of the things they point to for the reason that they don't participate in church is church is too political. Sometimes though, they'll say church is not political enough. <laughs> you know, they don't get involved in the things they need to be. So we think it's important conversation to have. Um, you know, a couple things I always like to say at the outset when talking about politics is, I mean, I love the United States. Like I feel really blessed to live here. I feel like God has done a lot of powerful things through the United States, use the United States in good ways. But there has also been some evil in our country's histories. I like to tell people, I think, I think God has used the United States. I think Satan has too, you know, from time to time. Um, if we believe that all humans are creating the image of God and yet sinners, it shouldn't be challenging for us to say that that a country could be both good and bad at, at the same time. My big concern in this conversation, though, is when politicians use religion as a tool, you know, a carrot to kind of get people to do things, but always wonder, are the Christians really getting what the politicians are promising, you know? And is all this really just a way that politicians are watering down what the faith really means, you know? And so that's why I was really drawn to this book I saw. Um, Andy Polk uh, just wrote this book entitled Faith and Freedom. And uh, to give you a little bit of background, I knew Andy growing up. We went to church together. We went to school together. I'm a few years older, so we were never super tight. Uh, but he ran track with my brother, was kind of a track mentor with my brother, and I followed Andy's trajectory. About 10 years ago, Andy came and spoke at our church on this theme of, of faith and politics. He has master's degrees from both Lipscomb University and Yale University, a PhD in religious history from Florida State, and is now a professor at Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro. And he's released this book, Faith and Freedom, where he goes back and he historically looks at the time of FDR, Truman and Eisenhower to see what was going on behind the scenes where politicians were crafting this notion 
of civil religion and trying to unify the population during the World War II era, the post-war era against the atheistic Soviet Union, kind of all that stuff's going on. And it's just really, really interesting, Drew, from a historical perspective. One of the things I think is important for us is to just listen and try to get to know our history on these themes. Yeah, I think the uh, a big line that I always use is, you can't know where you are or where you're going unless you know where you've been. Mm-hmm. So to talk about the the intersection of uh, faith and religion and politics overlapped with history is an incredibly important conversation. So why don't we get into this interview that you had with Andy, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about it. Andy, I really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. To start off, can you tell me about spiritual background of your childhood and how that connects to your present experiences now? Yeah, of course. Thank you first for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's a, the type of conversation I wanted to have for a while about, about the book and its, its implications. So thank you. Uh, yeah, so I was uh, raised in the church, to say it the least. People say since birth, but you know, I was there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, I think, uh, while in the womb. So that's got to count somehow. Uh, so, yeah, it's just part of my experience. And, and from the Churches of Christ, uh, same tradition, uh, I, had, I had a good childhood. Went through um, different churches through elementary school. We were in Mississippi and then moved to uh, southeast Nashville to Antioch. Um, went to, I think, Una Church of Christ uh, there at the beginning. Uh, so it, it was good. Uh, I always had good experiences at church growing up. Uh, the, the problems came when I was uh, probably middle school and up. Uh, it turned out I asked more questions than adults were comfortable with. Uh, and I think it was both the frequency of the questions and the types of questions. Uh, so that was, that was most of my struggle. I, if in my idea and the way that I was raised with my parents who are, are relatively conservative in, in virtually every way, but their idea was if God gave us brains, God's not afraid for us to use them. We, we, why would the creator of everything be worried about us thinking too much or too hard? So all those questions were perfectly fine and encouraged at home uh, and not as much at, at church. And that was everything from, you know, what does this passage actually mean? And doesn't these three verses before mean that it's not that? Or, you know, I learned this, and this historical note, all those types of things. Uh, so it, it's been a journey ever since then. Uh, still still love the Church of Christ, the tradition I, I grew up in. We don't currently attend a, a Church of Christ uh, congregation now, uh, United Methodist congregation. I've, I've done work with them through uh, a bunch of different avenues um, in different denominations through my kind of graduate uh, school going up. Uh, and, and most now I, I feel called particularly to those outside of the church, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, some suicide prevention. So so that, that's kind of where my theological trajectory has come. I'm not sure it's more liberal. I, I hope it's just more faithful and orthodox. <laughs> Uh, but my conservative friends sure think that it's, it's liberal. So, <laughs> well, that's part of things you get into is like, where do these definitions of conservative and liberal yeah. even come from? But before we get into that, so you're a, you're a history professor at MTSU. Is that the specific department you're in? Yes. 
Yeah, I'm in the history department, teach kind of 20th century U.S. and then all religious history, religious experience in the U.S., U.S. religion and politics, all that stuff. I'm a lot of fun at parties. People <laughs> always just really want to get into my work immediately. Well, I'm a minister at parties, so. Oh, that's right. Rather, that works. Yeah, they would rather talk to you. To uh huh. That's right. What led you to study history, specifically religious history, and get into that field? Because it was, uh, it's the intersection of all the things that I find interesting. I, I think that's one of the reasons that uh, religion and politics get so controversial, because it matters. Um, those types of things matter, and, and race and gender and sexuality, all of those. Uh, so to me, studying it through history just made the most sense. Uh, that's just the discipline that I was connected to the most. Uh, but, but going back to religious history, I, I went back and forth of what that meant. So I had an MA in biblical studies and then did uh, an MAR in history of Christianity and the PhD is in uh, religious studies, uh, but all of that geared towards American religious history. Uh, and specifically the ways that, that people lived with religion, right? I think that was what fascinated me the most. Um, we tend to talk about religion as theological precepts that we cognitively believe. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that's virtually no one's actual experience with religion. So it always fascinated me, even the theological aspect. Why is it that we say certain things, but we don't do them? Not just base hypocrisy, like sociologically, anthropo anthropologically, what's going on? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, those are the types of questions I wanted to figure out. What's really happening here? Well, and that's definitely something we've seen the last 10 years on, on, on all sides, but like people can say, these are my list of presuppositions. These are my list yeah. of beliefs, but then behavior, there's often this kind of like gut instinct mm -hmm. practice of behavior that comes out. And, um, and I think part of it is, is us living in, in 2022, trying to understand where that come, came from. And so that's yeah. why I really appreciate your book. So you've recently released this book entitled Faith and Freedom, and you focus on the formation and distribution of civil religion, kind of in the World War II era, post-World War II era. Mm -hmm. and, and I love how far back you go. And I love the focus on, so you specifically focus on, on FDR, Truman, and Eisenhower. Yeah which I love because, so you've got both political parties involved and you've got the war era, but then also the post-war era uh, getting into the Cold War, which we've all recently been reminded of. And yes, that's right. Ways. So I'm always interested in this term civil religion. Um, how would you define civil religion? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult term, both uh, in the scholarship and the way that we use it. So civil religion, as we talk about it, comes from a guy, a sociologist named Robert Bella, uh, wrote a famous article in Daedalus in 1967, I think, uh, that he was referring to, right, in the late 60s, uh, we're, we're still in the Cold War, but we're past the Holy 50s, right, where supposedly America was united and was coming together, and now there's protests against the war, second wave feminism, civil rights, Right, of what that means now in 67 is taking a turn. Uh, and Bella talked about this thing that seemed to unite the country before, uh, and he talked about it as a civil religion, um, as not just patriotism of a love of country, but a type of religion of the, the civic policy, right, of all the citizens, the people together. Uh, and when we talk about religion, religious rituals, 
we have the same types of things. We have mantras, we have symbols that mean something inexplicable and deep, right? That, that there is a type of religion that is the civil society together. It was in Rome and it is in America too. That's, that's the idea, of the, the general idea. Uh, it was controversial from the beginning. Uh, and I think a lot of that controversy, I'll talk about someone in the introduction here, is Bella identified that as something that just somehow sprang up among the public, right? That's just overall overwhelming all to the nation and what we were and freedom, and it just was. Uh, but pretty much everyone that's come after, and I'm certainly in this train as well, says, no, it wasn't a natural process. Someone crafted that story, right? That definition of America as this with religious undertones, that comes from something, right? People didn't just start saying this out of nowhere. Uh, and then my, my research that through the ages eventually came to uh, this discovery that you can trace it back to specific and intentional public relations or what I call religious propaganda campaigns um, all the way back to FDR before the Second World War. Before getting into some of that trajectory, like in, in your understanding as someone that, you know, you're a lifelong Christian, mm -hmm. how does how does civil religion differ from Christianity? And and maybe there's sometimes there's even weird overlaps and we yeah. we're kind of like hugging civil religion, but don't mm -hmm. even aware we're doing it. Uh, and ultimately, I want to talk about Christian nationalism eventually yeah. in the conversation, but but I, I feel like based on your book and other things, civil religion is really the place to start before we do that. So how is Christianity different from civil religion? Yes, the right people would say in, in this discussion and in debates over civil religion and where we are as, as Christians and how we interact with the nation state, that there is, of course, a long stream in the, the tradition of wanting to wanting the best for your neighbors right uh, we see this certainly in, in babylon right in jeremiah and these other ideas that you now where you go even amongst others you want the best for them and then on top of that there's also the tradition of israel as the conquering kingdom right going into the promised land and because they're on god's side that they take everything over um, part of that tension is where civil religion comes from it's a human thing Right. In the same way that the prophets come to Israel and say, hey, you think you're doing what God wants because you're fasting, you're fasting and you're sacrificing and you think that's faithfulness. No, this is what I want you to be. But the idea is God resides with us. We're on God's team. The, the closest eye of the civil religion and, and white nationalism is just a very specific manifestation of it is the idea that God abides with America. That is not just a nation that has done good, that has good principles, that had good political philosophy. It is that God made it. Um, I would argue in the Christian tradition that that is um, that's anathema. We it's heretical uh, that we can't say that God resides in this people. If there's nothing else in uh, tradition of Jesus. It, it is whenever you think you have God figured out, you know who God is and how it all works. Oh, that's when you've missed everything, right? That's a God of your own making. So Christianity is attached, but it's a question of power is really what it comes to. Right? The same thing the church had to deal with post-Constantine. Um, people can interpret that, right? When Constantine gives the church power for the first time, uh, there's a question of what then you do with that. 
do you take that power? Do you use the power for good, right? Because you can use it better than the other people, all those pagans, the ones who don't know God. And so you have power and you use power and you do things that maybe aren't right or good, but it's necessary for the thing to live. And so that becomes the thing. America itself is an agent of God. So to support America is to support God. That's civil religion. And Christian nationalism is just Jews and pretty much Catholic Christians don't get to play. They're not involved, right? It's just, it's it's white conservative evangelical nation. That's, that's all Christian nationalism is. Oh man, there is a lot to chew on there already, and we're only 11 minutes into the interview. <laughs> um, one thing that Andy said early on that I, I really appreciate is that the conversation of faith, you can take it from two different sides. You can say that faith is either lived out religion, so faith that looks like something that influences your actions and your behaviors and things like that. Or faith can be just believed theological presuppositions. Basically, I believe the right thing. I think the right thing. I've got the right facts in place. And so therefore, that's what faith is. And so the question is like, how do either of those things play out? And my belief is that when you just boil down faith to believed theological presuppositions, it's just things that you believe to be true. You can then take those things and layer them on top of your different opinions or uh, ideas or your perception of the way the world works. And then it just becomes this muddled water of, okay, so what is faith? Is faith actually just what I think is true or is faith actually you know, the way I think the world should work. Whereas on the other side, I, I think that faith needs to be lived out religion where it takes on, you know, what does faith mean for me and for my neighbor? And if religion is lived out, what's going to happen with me and my neighbor? Yeah. Like as, as we continue to claim Christ as Lord and we continue to live into the kingdom of God, what does that look like? To me, one is all uh, thinking and logical based and the other is true lived out Mm -hmm. religion. Yeah, that's really interesting. I also think what we've seen the last five to 10 years is we've seen a lot of things make what's underneath be revealed. So a lot has been exposed. And I think we all have, as people of faith, we have to ask the question, like, what is my core? Is my core, when when it's all revealed and I dig down, is my core the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God? My, as you say, my lived out reality in that kingdom of God. Or I think some of us have realized Man, when I got down to my core, my core was God bless America and apple pie and football and the flag. And and I could be honest, I love apple pie and football too, <laughs> you know, but it can't be the core. And and I think what civil, civil religion is so manipulative and it can be so ingrained in our culture that we can have a heart allegiance to civil religion. Drew, I could be honest. 
I have been surprised the ways in which my heart has gotten overtaken by civil religion. And it's revealed to me, and I have to confess it and repent of it when it happens, that the gospel of Jesus is far deeper and is more core than civil religion. But civil religion is always going to be there to tempt us. Yeah, I love the way that Andy put it. He just said that uh, civil religion can be phrased like this. God made it for us. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course, the question around that is like, who is us? <laughs> yeah, who's the us? Who's the us that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. But but if civil religion is God made it for us, then what is Christianity? Maybe it's that God made it for everyone. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really a, a crucial start of a conversation on politics and religion is what has been the diff- what has been your perception of the way that Christianity and faith is lived out? Is it lived out in the tangible things that you see happening, or is it lived out in what it reaffirms for you? In this next section, Andy's going to get more into the history of how civil religion is framed, how it's used by politicians, and kind of the good, bad, the ugly of that. one of the things I really appreciate about your book I'm used to so so in my world as a minister and the conversations I have with folks I've been used to the last five to ten years the church is the villain yeah Um, and and certainly throughout history you you can point to times where the church definitely did not live up to its calling but your book seems to be saying not as much church was the villain but the church allowed itself to be manipulated and co-opted so as you talk about and and I've always I'm trying to phrase it like this with some of my students that my concern in kind of the church and politics thing is, is not that politics will become like Jesus, but the church will become like our politics. And that's right. Yep. It's like any relationship. You're like, who's getting the better deal out of this relationship, but expand on how, in your view of the history, well-intentioned Christians sure. were manipulated. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how far back in that story you want want to go, uh, but the very least when we talk that this version of it, right? So there's always been in American history this concept of God being in control, right? Of the providential destiny, um, right? You had everything of manifest destiny of going to the West, and, right? We're going to Christianize and civilize, and uh, in in the First World War, um, we were on undoubtedly on God's side, right? This was a, a just an explicit part of the government's message during the First World War. And then in the interwar period, right, it it settles down, then we get to the Depression. Um, FDR had had problems with this when he he thought into the 40s that America needed to get involved in the war, and America wouldn't do it. Uh, they don't want to deal with Europe, right? We already rejected the League of Nations after Versailles, after the First World War. We're just not going to deal with it all. And he said, well, we need to get, we need to be united towards the, this thing that's coming. And he, he sat down with, with some of his people. And there's this question of, well, what can you use? When you talk about American unity, we can't talk about race, right? It's just impossible. It's too divisive. You can't talk about class, um, and you, you can't talk about ethnicity, which was essentially a new construction of the time. This idea we come from different places, but we have the heritage, right? E- even the melting pot idea, it's too divisive because people are their own people. 
But what they decided was, but religiously, we're all the same. If you're in America, you're religious, you're either a Catholic, you're a Protestant, or you're a Jew, and they all believe the same thing in you. All right, this term Judeo-Christian, it, it was first coined in the mid-1930s. It's a relatively new idea. But all of this came to, if we talk about we're different religiously, but at the heart, we're all the same, that could sell unity. But even from the very beginning, it was selling a specific type of unity, a national unity for the sake of FDR's purposes. Uh, and that became the obsession of the next three presidential administrations. So you're telling the story of presidents are looking at, you know, the facts on the ground and the opinions of the masses and saying, we've got to find a way to unify the people to be a strong nation. Race is divisive, ethnicity is divisive, class is divisive. Let's use religion. And, and yeah. I can totally see these folks in their shirt and tie behind the desk saying, oh, it's all the same. And then me uh -huh. in Protestant world going, That's right. oh, I love these folks, but we're not all the same. Uh -huh. So how, how did they pull it off? How did they, I mean, how did they convince these people I mean, these people, our grandparents' generation, yeah. how did they convince them to go along with this and find unity in this kind of, um, you know, the, the God and country type of mindset? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing is to say is I'm not sure the unity was ever really there. I think it was a facade. We, we see this break apart even through the 50s. But the answer for how they could sell it so well, at least for a decade, I think the answer is war and time. Um, when you have a war, everything that FDR was trying to do, he tried to convince the people that, uh, that the Soviet Union wasn't against religion because they didn't favor religion. Like somehow this is free and people mocked him and went through. He, he told this story about how uh, Hitler is the greatest threat to religion. He hates our religion uh, and he wants to replace the, the cross, Jesus cross with a cross of blood and iron. And it's just none of this stuff worked until Pearl Harbor when all of a sudden America is almost unanimously going to war. And then this idea that we're all together in this way, in an incredibly ambiguous way, right? It, I mean, it's almost nonsensical. We're all, we all worship the Judeo-Christian God. It's, it's meaningless if you ask any questions about what any of that is, but it fits, it feels good. It, it, it's a message that makes sense. And then the other big change during World War II is once soldiers went out in the field, this idea that you're a, you're a Catholic, a Protestant, or a Jew, and it's all the same, uh, in the field, they started doing these things called general services, where they explicitly said, this is all the same. You, you could have a, a Methodist minister giving Holy Eucharist to Catholics or, or leading a Jewish service. Because they're all the same thing. And that freaked, that was too much for the military. That was too much for FDR. Like this idea of like, oh, no, no, they're different. They're enough different. You can't do all that stuff. But when those soldiers came back, that was their idea of American religion. It is, it was the idea of Judeo-Christian lumped together for the sake of freedom. Uh, and, and that was... That idea was then exploited and given specific names and terms over the next decade. You know, I think this is related. So many Protestant traditions really experienced widespread growth in the 50s. Absolutely. And 
it would appear that that's when the soil of this civil religion was so strong. Mm -hmm. Is that why so many of these large Protestant groups today who experienced growth during a time period that was so the post-war 1950s uh -huh. civil religion, is that why this is still so strong? For, not in a doctrinal way, but in a gut instinct way. Yeah, I think part of it, that's when, that's when religion was dominant, right? I mean, this is what people talk about, even if, right, don't have to get into Trumpism, but make America great of stuff. When was America great? Well, the 50s, right? When, when Americans were all united together and we loved God and we loved country and families were praying together and we were going around, right? All that, I mean, one, all that's telling in itself. That's the great religious zenith of America, unless you're a black American, or, right, I mean, what we would call just ethically horrendous things were somehow tied to all that, too. But it was a, it was a time of dominance. I mean, I think to your, your earlier question of how did, how did these religious groups allow themselves to be exploited, part of it was the war, right? You're going to love America. Would you hate, do you like the communists? Do you like the fascists? Do you like the Nazis, right? No, you love America. And then when the war ends and what America is the definition is a religious America, right? Where you're on the top, you're elite. When all of that starts to go together, that story becomes a convenient story. And liberal Protestants were in the same thing. They, they absolutely loved it. They were all on board. Um, the problem is they kept telling, especially Truman, the, the Federal Council of Churches, kept sending him these program reports in which they were policy advisories. Like, that this collection of liberal Protestants continuously gave the president documents that told him what to do for domestic and international policy, foreign policy. And he finally got so fed up with one of these called a program for peace. He wrote on the top of, of the hand copy of this, in which he said, um, this asinine document is as full of sophistry as a communist manifesto. Let's analyze it for what it is. And he, the churches were too loose. They wouldn't get along with the program. And so Truman at that point just dismissed them and went with the allies that he had, which was the Advertising Council, a group of advertisers that called themselves the War Advertising Council during the Second World War because they were worried the government was going to shut them down. So they went to the government and said, we're good at selling things to people. What do you want people to believe? And they were so proficient at this that they, they in essence, became the domestic propaganda wing of the U.S. government. It's not an exaggeration. They, the domestic, quote, domestic propaganda money from the Office of War Information, which is given to the Ad Council, uh, they had what they called, quote, secret indoctrination talks with the president, the vice president, the secretary of war, the, the director of the CIA, the newly formed CIA, with the advertising council. Just, just ad guns. And so they decided, um, you unite America by religion. We're all the same. So they try to bring religious leaders, you know, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, yeah, to unify the country. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, as as in a lot of relationships, you anticipate it's going to be reciprocal. So you say, hey, I'll unify the people, but then I kind of have some policy recommendations. That's right. Uh -huh. Politicians don't want to go with the policy recommendations. So after they kind of get it going, they distance themselves. And that's always my, you know, my sidebar. I find every uh -huh. time a, relig a religious leader gets in a photo op, I'm like, are they really getting the policy they want? And so, yeah. to be honest, sometimes I agree with their policy recommendations. Sometimes I don't. 
but I'm like, they're a believer in Jesus. So I have that in common with them, but is this working for them? Are they yep. actually getting the policy? And I believe more often than not, they're not, they're yeah. just being used for any unity that might bring, but back to the idea of using advertising guys, I'm immediately thinking of Mad Men and all that. Yeah, that's exactly like that. Yeah. Can you give us a few examples of during the Truman era, what patriotic advertising would have looked like? Yeah. So the, there, there were three big campaigns. We'll, we'll talk about the first and the third. The first one is called the Freedom Train. So this was uh, 1947. There was a group called the American Heritage Foundation. Uh, this was a like conglomeration of uh, celebrities, mostly conservative politicians, um, CEOs of national and international corporations. They wanted to get together and they wanted to define America for Americans. That's how they talked about it. So the War Advertising Council did it just dropped a war. They just called themselves the Advertising Council. They were like, well, yeah, let's do that, right? We, we can figure this out. Uh, the leader, Thomas Darcy Brophy, uh, he called it, quote, reselling Americanism to Americans, right? I mean, it's branding for America. And so they got together and this was, this is an actual train going across the country. It had uh, like documents, amazing Washington's copy of the constitution, right? Jefferson's personal copy of the declaration, just incredible. The base Psalm book was here and everywhere it stopped, they had what they called patriotic revival meetings. And all of this decision, right? I mean, it's exactly what the word. It was just a revival, but about America. And they, all of this is documented. The leaders got together and they're trying to figure it out. What branding works? What do we, what is America? Uh, and the Tom Clark, the attorney general of the United States, who was in these talks with them, he wanted it to be liberty or equality, right? And the ad council said, you cannot, you cannot make it liberty or equality. It won't sell in the South. You can't go into the South and say that America is about equality. It'll never work. So they said freedom is better. Make America about freedom. Because one, who doesn't love freedom, right? No one's be like, you like, yeah, it's okay sometimes. But also what is freedom? It's an incredibly vague term. It means virtually nothing. It, everyone loves freedom because freedom is being free. And so they said, that's what it is because then you get to play it. Religious freedom and free market, right? America is about religious freedom. The so godless Soviets hate it. They hate our free markets. That's right. It's also an economic thing. So how do we defend ourselves? We must have a large standing army. And somehow those became the cornerstones of God in America. That this faith in freedom was America is a Christian nation, Judeo-Christian nation in some sense. Um, we must have free markets, right? We are capitalists. Capitalism is sacred. Uh, communism is the worst because it's godless and it's socialist. And we must always have a large standing army. We must be a powerful military force across the world. And all of those were simply because of the policy recommendations of the politicians who sold them and ordered the propaganda. But they became so inclined with the idea of America versus the communists, that's why it still lasts, because that was America. Powerful, in charge, right on the side of God. And suddenly to be evil is to be a communist. 
It's not religious, but it was never supposed to be. JP, here's what sticks out to me is that in the early 1900s, World War I, World War II, the U.S. is being faced with this question of who are we and how do other nations and powers perceive us? And so I totally understand the, the, the temptation or the need to say, okay, we need to find some sort of unity or identity that kind of defines us as a nation. And who is that? most broadly like who does who does our country most broadly represent and they come out and say well this judeo-christian worldview that's who we are it's it it most encompasses our ideals as a nation and so let's stick with this judeo-christian identity and so then it just becomes this story of this is national unity through religion for the sake of freedom and to me, that's the battle that I see has been fought all the way through internally, has been internally, we as a nation, we fought that within ourselves all the way through the 1900s and up to today. It's like, who are we as a nation for the sake of freedom? And because so early on that identity was tied to faith and the Judeo-Christian worldview, we're now starting to see some of the fallout of those who identify with that but don't want to identify with that nationalistic identity, the questions are starting to be asked, well, then who are we as a nation? Yeah. And, and, and how do I live out faith in a way that's apart from national unity and identity because that's started to become dangerous and manipulative. And that's, it just has cast so many questions into the ether that we're all just wrestling with. And we're like, I don't know how to, hold these two together if they need to be held together at all i like the i like your focus on identity because i think identity becomes a big question what i was really drawn to there was how politicians namely fdr and then later truman wanted to use religious language religious symbols to unify the people but then when christians came back and said here are our policy recommendations they're basically like that's not what we're doing here. Like we're using you, but you're not using us. Yeah, We got what we needed out of you and we're done. I think that's just a reminder to us that, you know, as, as scripture says, we need to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And we need to have a lot more wisdom in our relationships with the political sphere, because I do believe the political sphere will make promises that it has no intentions of upholding. And, if in that process it ends up watering down our faith, then we're hurting our witness and getting nothing in return, you know? And that's just, <clears throat> there are no winners in that. Specifically, it, it harms the reputation of Jesus. And, and all this goes to our present day conversations about Christian nationalism. And you hear all kinds of different definitions of what that is. And there's all kinds of controversies about that. So in this last section, Andy and I discuss Christian nationalism. transition a little bit it's the same thing i'm talking about christian nationalism a second and i want you to tell yeah. me if i'm a christian nationalist because i've been wondering that lately because that's yeah. that, that's the big term okay so 
I'm a Christian who would like to see more Americans become Christians. And I read the Sermon on the Mount and it says the church is supposed to be salt and light in a city on a hill. Mm -hmm. So I would like to influence more Americans to live like Jesus. And I don't want to use coercive methods, but I would like to use persuasive methods to help more people in America live like Jesus. Because I love this country. I'd like it to be more like Jesus. Does that uh -huh. make me a Christian nationalist? Uh, no, because of the last thing you said. Because you don't want to use coercive means, you want to use persuasive means. Now, people that I think would be accurately uh, described as Christian nationalists might also say, no, I just want to persuade, right? I want to lead people over. Christian nationalism is simply an understanding that um, it is a belief that America is, has a special place in God's plans, uh, so special that, that America is essential for God's plans on, on earth. And therefore, Christians have a responsibility to, to use America and American power uh, to make the world better, to make it be better. Um, that, that's Christian nationalism, right? So it's the difference between, if we're going to do Constantine again, right? It's the difference between, um, right, Irenaeus or someone who is of the patristic period, who is a Christian, prays, says to pray for the Roman Empire, to, to pray, right, for the emperor who believes the emperor is a god and, and can do whatever the emperor wants, right? To even praying for those people and wanting the best and wanting to spread Christianity. There is that, and there is believing that the Roman Empire was ordained by God to bring peace on earth. And so Christians must be in charge of the Roman Empire to best use the economic and military power of the empire to spread peace on earth. Those are different things. The Maybe they have the same goal. I'm not sure they do. Maybe they have the same goal, but the ways that they get there are vastly different. And again, there's a lot of Christians, Christians that I know, Christians that I respect, that would see, would see no problem in the idea of, yeah, we need to take the reins of power and use whatever, do whatever we need to do to keep America safe, um, that that is itself godly. I, I would read Jesus in an entirely different way. And they say, no, the power is there. We've got to take the power. But that's where it comes from. I mean, like you, I'm surrounded by people who love Jesus and people that love this country. And yeah. so this conversation comes up all the time. And so yeah. I'm constantly trying to think of when is this healthy? When is this unhealthy? Yeah. Okay. Two things I've started to notice trying to get to the root of this. And, and once again, you tell me where this comes from historically and if I'm on the right track. So I start to sense it's Christian nationalism when the passages in the Bible about Israel are applied to the United States mm -hmm. chosen nation language. Yeah. And I start to think it's Christian nationalism when people start to use an ends justify the means logic mm -hmm. or utilitarianism. So am I on the right track with those two things? Yes. Yes. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, that there, there is a difference between believing that wherever you are, because you're a Christian, you try to bless and help that community. Again, the Jews in exile in Babylon. There is a difference between that and America itself. The, the nation is sacrosanct is sacred 
And when that happens, whatever it takes for that sacred thing to live is itself a sacred act. And that's where it becomes incredibly problematic because you can justify anything. Mm-hmm. We Institutions do this all the time. We, I mean, you know this well, right? In, in churches, individual congregations, this is maybe always the temptation, right? A group of people who love each other and love God and want to bless those around them in their community. But once you give it a name and it has a building, and it has a mortgage, it has a thing, the idea is we need to do whatever we can to keep it going because if it's not here, we can't do anything. So we can do less good over here, maybe even what we think is a wrong, but it's justified because the thing exists. When that becomes a nation state in geopolitics, the most powerful nation in the world, economically and militarily, when you're justifying so many means, it becomes ethically compromised. Um, America is full of people and people are neither good nor bad. I, I don't understand this somehow debate over if you ever say that America is not perfect, somehow you hate America, mm-hmm. or America is the worst and it's an evil incident. Listen, America was built by people, it's systems, it's filled with people, and we're good and we're bad, we're, we're, we're not right, we're broken. And so of course America is. It can be good and have done horrible things. It can be because it was built on the backs of slaves. While Thomas Jefferson was giving the idea of it's just self-evident that some truths are here, that people have these rights. Mm-hmm. Not women when he wrote it, not, not black men and women, but it was there and somehow we took that and applied it bigger and made it better. That's good, it's all good. But America isn't to be worshiped. And if America falls, God doesn't fall. That's not the way it works. Well, if church going Christians have this embedded and I believe biblical notion that we're all sinners yeah, and we're saved by the grace of God, that should prepare us to live in a country that we love and is wonderful and has done some unique good in this world, but at the same time is incredibly flawed. I would think it would prepare us for that. So Christians that believe they're sinners saved by the grace of God, why do they struggle to apply those same beliefs to the country? I think because of uh, who and how we apply it to, right? I I think one of our our worries is we have made God so much about us, um, about our own personal salvation, right? So I believe that I am a sinner, um, but God loves me anyway, right? And that's the motivation. I think that's true. That's absolutely true. It should be. But that's not the scandal of the gospel. The scandal of the gospel is so are you. Right. And so is every other person we meet. Every person that I meet is a sinner who is made in the image of God, whom God loves just as much as God loves me and has forgiven just as much as God has forgiven me. Right. All we're waiting for now is the reaction from us. God's already done everything. That's the scandal. We're all equal. Right. That's the part we don't like. I'm fine with being loved by God. I'm fine with this country being loved, God. But we need hierarchies and we need others. And we need to be better than. And, and I would say the scandal of the gospel is we can't do that. That's why Jesus is so weird and radical and dangerous. We can't do that. Because we're all the same. We just don't want to be the same. In closing, so let's say, you know, somebody comes up to you, like, Andy, you, you, you teach on 
history, religion, politics, mm. you know, what's going on in America? And let's say it's a Christian who loves America. Yeah. Okay. You know, they're Christian followers. They love America. They're willing to admit she's imperfect, but they want to be salt and light in this world. They want a reason to have hope. They want to be involved in yeah. politics, but they're just so disillusioned. And if they've read your book, they're a little frustrated that they've been manipulated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what advice would you give them? The advice I would give them is that I believe the call of Jesus is to be faithful, not to be effective. That we spend most of our time when we're concerned about power and prestige and titles and money and influence. We want to be effective, right? We want to win. We want to do things. We want to get on top. We want things to be good for other people, right? In the best of circumstances. I would say that's where we tend to go wrong. I, I think Jesus, at least in the synoptics, seems to be pretty clear. Just be faithful. Just try to do the most faithful thing in every circumstance. And you can be little and it won't matter because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, Christians can be involved in politics, but they can't think it's salvation. They can't think that it's going to make the world all better if they just pass, if they just, it can help, it can be good. Um, but we're called to be faithful. And so we can't ever do that if that's the, the reordering. We can't ever say, well, I'm going to be just a little unfaithful because this will help me be more effective. I think that's just what we do all the time. Just this little thing, because again, if we're not effective, if we don't exist, we can't do anything. So we can do all these little grads just to do some good, but we just be faithful. Um, I would say that's all that we're ever called to do in America or anywhere else. Just, just try to be, be faithful. Live as if every person we meet is made in the image of God and loved by God just as much of us. That's hard enough in itself. Pretty dangerous too, right? But if we do that, that's it. That's all we got to do. It's really simple. It's really hard. All right.